Expert Insights is an ongoing medical education podcast. The Carl Division of Continuing Education designates that each episode of this enduring material is worth a maximum of 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. To collect credit, please click on the link and complete the episode's post-test. This podcast forum is brought to you to share expertise and insights within our integrated delivery system to help us improve the health of the people we serve and achieve world-class accessible care. This is Expert Insights. Here's your host, Melanie Cole. Certain brain changes may be inevitable when it comes to aging. Major memory problems are not one of them. That's why it's important for providers to know the difference between normal age-related forgetfulness and the symptoms that may indicate a developing cognitive problem. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Yano. He's a neurologist with the Carl Foundation Hospital. Dr. Yano, explain a little bit about memory loss as it relates to aging, and is it a normal part of aging? Is it something that's inevitable? Yeah, so it is normal to have a small degree of memory loss with aging. Uh, it actually begins younger than you might think. Uh, in our 40s and 50s, we begin to have measurable changes in our ability to uh, juggle multiple items in our head at one time, uh, for example. And it tends to gradually um, get worse over time, but usually it doesn't impair people's day-to-day functions. Um, if your patients are complaining to you that they're unable to manage their daily affairs, so for example, they can't manage their medications or they um, have a hard time with driving uh, or having a hard time with their bills, that would be a suggestion that what your patient is suffering from is uh, worse than normal aging-associated cognitive impairments and uh, may ultimately have uh, a diagnosis of, uh, of a bona fide memory disorder. Are there some disease processes, and you mentioned medications as well, that can cause or accelerate memory issues or cognitive issues, what are some common conditions and factors that can lead to this type of loss? Well, the most common things that we see are mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease, and there's a spectrum. Uh, With mild cognitive impairment, these are individuals who have memory loss, which is worse than normal aging, and that's assessed using objective uh, measures typically done by a neuropsychologist. Um, But patients with mild cognitive impairment don't yet have functional impairment, meaning they're still able to manage their day-to-day affairs, uh, but their memory difficulties are noticeable uh, to them and to their family, uh, typically. If the memory difficulties progress to the point that people have a functional impairment, at that point, they've crossed a threshold into dementia. By definition, dementia implies that there's been some cognitive loss that affects functional day-to-day activities. And the most common kind of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. And so mild cognitive impairment is often thought of as a prodromal state uh, to Alzheimer's disease. We know that there is a pretty significant risk. It's about 10 to 15 percent per year of individuals who have mild cognitive impairment who eventually develop uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, There is uh, a family of other disorders that can cause memory difficulties. So as a physician, you don't want to only focus on mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's. Of course, there are vascular cognitive changes that are quite common as uh, people age that can cause memory impairment. Other forms of dementia like Lewy body 
dementia. Uh, frontotemporal dementia can sometimes manifest as a memory uh, change, though that often has some personality uh, changes as well. And then certain disorders that are actually quite treatable, like normal pressure hydrocephalus, uh, which is not common, uh, but you should be on the lookout for this because uh, if you select your patients properly, patients can do pretty well with the surgical uh, intervention. So there really are a number of different disorders that can lead to uh, an initial memory complaint. Speak about the clinical presentation and for providers, what red flags should they be hearing from family members or the patient themselves as far as things that would warrant the history and to start the diagnostic process? Sure. So typically, if it's going to be an Alzheimer's-related process uh, or an amnestic mild cognitive impairment, so a a memory-driven mild cognitive impairment, um, typically what patients' families will complain of uh, is that the patient uh, repeats things They'll make a statement, and uh, 20 minutes later, they'll make the same statement or they'll ask the same questions uh, multiple times, and that's simply because the they don't remember the first time they've made that statement or the first uh, response to uh, a question. Um, uh, often, patients will have difficulty with uh, visual-spatial orientation, so they might get lost easily with driving. Um, that's a pretty common problem, and you have to be paying attention for that, and and often this would be getting lost in familiar territory. Probably one of the most important things you should know is that the patient themselves almost always doesn't have a real appreciation for the the memory difficulties. So if you have a patient in your office and they're by themselves and they say they're doing great, there's no memory issues at all, that's typically not a very reliable uh, source. So you definitely want to probe uh, the family members, typically the spouse or the adult children, because um, they're usually the first ones who will notice any symptoms at all. So speak for us about diagnosis, and why is it important to know what is underlying the memory loss a person is showing? Sure. So um, the key diagnostic test that we use um, to sort out whether it's, for example, normal aging-related cognitive impairment versus mild cognitive impairment that could lead to Alzheimer's or to Lewy body disease or vascular dementia, Um, the key test is what's called formal neuropsychological testing. Uh, And what that consists of is uh, meeting with a neuropsychologist, and the neuropsychologist or their technician will spend about three or four hours assessing a patient's memory, um, often testing multiple domains, multiple different ways to get a highly reliable result. Um, and then compare those results with typically age and education-adjusted norms so that people's performance is compared to other people's performances in the same age group and the same educational category. And um, that will typically uh, be a very good indicator as to what the underlying etiology is because each of these disorders has their own patterns in terms of strengths and weaknesses that the patient will um, display. Um, there are other tests that we order as well. Typically, we'll get a brain imaging study, like an MRI of the brain. Uh, that's usually done primarily to rule out other structural illnesses. Uh, often, we do these studies, and we're surprised to find that there's a lot more vascular disease that we may have appreciated, or there might be something like hydrocephalus, which can be treatable. Um, and then, typically, some lab work 
um, often thyroid testing, vitamin B12 levels, occasionally other lab testing if there's a clinical suspicion, uh, because occasionally we'll uncover somebody who has a vitamin B12 deficiency, and that's the cause of their memory uh, dysfunction, and that's a very easily treatable um, cause. So you definitely want to investigate um, to ensure that your patient isn't suffering from something which is highly treatable and uh, reversible. So as long as you've mentioned treatment, and I know it depends on the diagnosis, but if this is something that is Alzheimer's-related, dementia-related, is there anything that can stop or reverse the disease process? What would you do for someone? And also, give some behavioral strategies that for providers that they can share with their patients and their loved ones that they can try at home to optimize functioning? Yeah, those are great questions. So in terms of uh, medications to reverse the illness, right now we don't yet have medications that can get into the brain and fix the underlying problems uh, that occur in Alzheimer's disease. There's lots of drugs being developed, but nothing yet that's been uh, approved. The types of medications that we have are designed to deal with the symptoms of the disease. And there's two categories of drugs. There are the cholinesterase inhibitors. These are drugs that boost acetylcholine levels in the brain. Uh, And then there is Mamantine, which is the only drug in its class, and this drug has a more, we'll just say, mysterious mechanism. We're not entirely sure how it works. Part of how it works uh, is to uh, provide a blockade of what are known as NMDA receptors uh, in the brain. And both of these classes of medications um, offer modest benefits when it comes to memory decline, uh, and both of these classes of medications are very well tolerated and they can be combined. So typically, eventually, most patients will end up on both uh, cholinesterase inhibitor plus memantine because we know that combination works better than either drug by itself. The other important component to the treatment of memory loss uh, is exercise, both physical and cognitive exercise. There's a lot of data available now indicating that physical exercise uh, can have very substantial benefits when it comes to memory loss. That's in addition to the benefits that it has for someone's general overall medical state. Um, But physical exercise uh, at this point is a standard part of what I uh, recommend to my patients. And then cognitive exercise, there's less data supporting it. But uh, as far as we can tell, certainly there's no harm from it. And there's um, lots of things that patients can engage in that we think can potentially help um, their memory uh, dysfunction. Now, you asked about behavioral strategies. Um, One thing to keep in mind, uh, patients with memory-related disorders like Alzheimer's disease typically don't appreciate the severity of their symptoms, number one. And number two, later in the illness, they can have uh, changes in behavior that can be pretty disturbing. They can have delusions, for example. They can believe things that are not true. They can believe uh, that people are out to hurt them or to steal from them or that their spouse uh, is not being faithful to them. Uh, and as you can imagine, these can be extremely distressing to the family uh, when these uh, delusions come up. And it's often extremely tempting to try to correct a patient out of a delusion and try to explain to them um, you know, what's really going on. And, and typically, this ends up being a pretty... Uh, futile uh, process and often can 
can make things worse. Uh, patients can get pretty frustrated and upset at their loved ones uh, during these situations. So uh, I advise patients to use what's called a no-fail strategy, uh, which is to uh, not necessarily confront uh, the delusion, but to try to distract when, uh, when it's possible, uh, find some other topic of conversation, and to uh, not necessarily try to engage to reverse the delusion because, uh, as we know, these are uh, almost impossible to, uh, to reverse. Dr. Yano, wrap it up for us. What great information. Tell other physicians what you'd like them to know about memory loss, what you want them to know as providers so that they can counsel their patients and their loved ones, possibly protect themselves from developing it, or at least to recognize the signs and symptoms that would get them the help that they need. Yeah, I think the most important thing is to try to get to a as specific of a diagnosis as you can, because each diagnosis is going to have a whole series of implications in terms of prognosis, how things are going to look down the line, and in terms of trying to, to activate um, uh, treatments relatively early. Now, even though we don't have medications that can reverse the illness, when you do make an early diagnosis, that can often make you much more aware of uh, comorbidities that can come along with Alzheimer's disease, such as depression or malnutrition. And being a little bit ahead of the game and having a diagnosis uh, is uh, going to allow you to uh, intervene at an earlier stage of these other comorbidities uh, and hopefully provide a better outcome for your patient. So I think um, having a a high index of suspicion, paying attention to the loved ones when they complain to you about um, the patient's memory loss, and um, and having a low threshold to send the patient for neuropsychological testing, uh, because that really is the first step in understanding, A, is this really a, a memory problem which is worse than normal aging, and then B, what's the nature of the memory problem? What's the most likely diagnosis? Um, does this patient need a neurologist, um, et cetera? Um, so that's really uh, where I think the, the, the emphasis should lie, is having that high index of suspicion and, and feeling comfortable ordering neuropsychological testing. Thank you so much, Dr. Yano, for being with us today. Really great information for providers to hear. You're listening to Expert Insights with the Carl Foundation Hospital. For a listing of Carl providers and to view Carl-sponsored educational activities, please visit carlconnect.com. That's carlconnect.com. We hope the information gained will be applicable to your work and life. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks for listening.